Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Friday, November 30th, 2018. And today I am joined by Professor John DeLury to talk about North Korea and China and the U.S. But before we get into the discussion, I have to tell you all about the new NK shop. NK News annual shop is back in business for the holiday season. Chad and the team have really stepped up their game this year and have extremely limited edition retro T-shirts, 2019 calendars, postcards, Andy Warhol-inspired canned goods posters, and vintage DPRK travel posters. Listeners to this podcast can get 10% off their entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10, that's NKPODCAST10, all one word, at the checkout. Just go to nkshop.org to see what's in stock this year. They'd make really great gift ideas for any North Korea watcher. Today's guest, John Delury, is Associate Professor of Chinese Studies at Yonsei University Graduate School of International Studies and Underwood International College, teaching modern Chinese history and East Asian relations. Delury is a Senior Fellow of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, member on the Council of Foreign Relations, and the National Committee on North Korea. Delury received his BA, MA, and PhD in Chinese history from Yale University. He is working on a book co-authored with Patrick McEachin on North Korean politics and history titled Survivor, North Korea from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-un, as well as a history of U.S.-China relations during the early Cold War. He is known around town as a Willem Dafoe lookalike. <laughs> okay, that's good. Is that That's your, good, yeah. All right, so I'm going to... Patrick McEachern. Thank you. I, you know, I've never heard it said. Yeah. McEachern. McEachern. I'm already tapping my jewelry. Wow, I know. It's... <laughs> Take that okay, ring right, off right, like right, I've go. done, let's first go. of all. Let's go. Let's do this. Uh, does he We're ever come here, by the way? <laughs> Just go. You're going to tease come me on. like that forever, yeah, Jesus. Okay, now you are originally a China man, uh, not a Korea man. And I mean that in terms of scholarship, not ethnicity. Uh, how did you come to Korea? How did I come to Korea? Well, via China. Uh, I mean, really, my uh, engagement with the Korean Peninsula began from uh, meeting my wife, who happens to be from Seoul, ah. was in Beijing. Uh, I was uh, studying at uh, Peking University at Beida. I was working on my uh, PhD, and she was teaching there, uh, teaching Korean language. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, really until then, I was 100% uh, Sinology, Chinese history, yeah. you know, all China things. Um, and so it was through her that I first I started to visit South Korea, um, but with no academic interest. And then uh, really when I started to do, you know, Korean studies, broadly defined, was about 10 years ago. At that point, I was at Asia Society and uh, I left. In, in New York? In New York. Uh, I left academe for a couple years. I was uh, the associate director working with Orville Schell at the Center on U.S.-China Relations. And um, it was quite sudden. I just, you know, uh, at that point, I mean, perennially, North Korea is a key issue in U.S.-China Relations. Sure. But uh, because I was now traveling to South Korea and, and trying to learn Korean things, I, I suddenly, you know, sort of, it's one of those moments where you say to yourself, I should be looking into North Korea. So for those two years at Asia Society, uh, I, I suddenly became quite interested in the North Korea issue. So the frame is as an issue in U.S.-China relations, you know, and that's always kind of uh, structured it. But I started traveling to North Korea. I learned a lot from uh, people who, who based in New York. Asia Society was a great place to, to start to learn North Korea things because, you know, we were able to, based in Manhattan, we were within the, what is it, 25-mile yeah. radius of uh, free travel for DPRK officials. And so uh, I was able, kind of piggy, piggybacking on the work of other people who had been doing it for a long time, I was able to sort of sit in on these things of uh, that sort of direct 
engagement with DPRK officials who are based in New York. At Asia Society, actually, we, we convened a task force. We did a pretty uh, serious project um, on economic engagement mm-hmm. called North Korea Inside Out that came out in 2009. And it was connected with that report that that I made a couple trips to uh, to North Korea. So yeah, the the North Korea base. There's you know argu- arguably there's a, a North a New York uh, school on North Korea, and uh, and the fact of the UN mission is is a key part of that because it's a small group who can have more direct regular contact with DPRK officials. Yeah. So I, I would say I got my start you know as a very very junior member. Uh, of the New York School. Is that also how you became involved in the track two world of, yeah. of US-North Korea relations? Yeah, exactly. I mean, actually... Uh, so, just for those who who may not be aware, could you briefly tell us what is actually the track two world? What's it actually mean? Yeah, um, track two is the term of art for uh, meetings with non-government people, people outside of government. Um, I suppose you could say talking about things that governments care about, you know. So mm-hmm. track two tends to be about uh, security, um, broadly defined. Uh, otherwise, you probably wouldn't call it track two. And um, actually, it's, so there's people use the term track 1.5 and 1.2. Mm. I think your listeners are probably aware of this. But um, 1.5 suggests that while organized and kind of dominated by non-government, there are government officials present yeah. in some capacity. In fact, when we talk about track two with North Korea, it's kind of impossible because right because the North Korea side always involves government officials, right? That's right. I mean, it might be non-government on your side, but you, that's right. you're not likely to meet non-governmental North Koreans. That's right. And actually, on on my side, um, I mean, in these engagements, you know, there are times where uh, most of the say the U.S. delegation is former government officials. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm. Retired sometimes I'm the problem. only one or there's a few of us yeah. who are truly I've never been in government and have no plans to be. So there's there's, you know, that it's a certain space where there's a strong connection to to government officials. But it's you know, it's often for issues where, you, you know, for for these last decade when there was so little talking, mm. uh, it played an obvious function yeah. uh, because it was useful to have someone talking to the North Koreans. And, you know, they kind of play along with the fiction. They show up with their Institute of blah, blah, blah. Uh, American cards. studies. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so they do have a certain, at least track 1.5 uh, element, you know, to it. Uh, one of your colleagues at Yonsei, Professor Moon Jong-in, is often seen as being an ideological mentor to, uh, pro- to President Moon Jae-in. Uh, I was got to keep my moons apart. Uh, you've written some things together and participated together in some track two, act- or may have been alleged to participate together in some track two activities with Professor Moon Jong-in. Would it be fair to say that he's an intellectual or political mentor to you too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's someone who, you know, he's a colleague at Yonsei, Definitely a mentor, friend, co-author. So, yeah, I've known, been lucky to know Professor Moon for a long time now. Now, he sometimes sort of floats these uh, these ideas that might be a little bit beyond where the current administration is prepared to go at this point in time, um, talking about confederations of two careers and things like that. And um, how, how far do you go along with those ideas? Yeah, I get this question sometimes. Um, I think sometimes people uh, who know uh, we've written together um, want to know what do you disagree on. I was asked that point blank recently. Um, but I would say actually my my views do tend to align fairly closely with Professor Moon. I mean, um, it, also I think the spirit of what he does I'm very much on board with. You know, he's 
he's an ideas guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, of course, has a formal position as a senior advisor. Professor Moon will go to a conference and say, look, I'm here yeah. in my capacity as, as a professor. Um, I, I think it's quite useful to have someone kind of thinking aloud, you know, who, who is not as, as careful. I mean, he can go beyond talking points and party lines. Um, and so I think that's very good for a, a liberal democratic society like South Korea, you know, to have someone very, obviously he's very much in the public space, um, thinking aloud. So obviously it prevents, uh, it creates problems of interpretation. Mm. Um, you know, does he speak for uh, President Moon? Um, and there, there have been clear cases, there have been a couple where the Blue House or, or I think even President Moon himself made it clear, Professor Moon does not speak for me or us right. on that issue. You know, those are his ideas. I mean, obviously, I'm pretty sympathetic to what he thinks. So I'm naturally going to think it's good that he's out there. But you need a certain degree of maybe not controversy, but these are very complex issues we're dealing with. And, and we are in a moment, a kind of transformative moment. So we need people out there thinking ahead, mm-hmm. thinking a bit boldly. And then, uh, you know, and then the public goes to work and you see what the what kind of consensus builds or does not build. Yeah, I think I, your name first came up on my radar when you went to North Korea with some bigwigs from Google uh, many years ago. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that trip and what the long term effects of that trip were for you and, and for Google in as much as you know about the latter? Oh, sure. Well. So that was my fourth and uh, it, for now last trip. I don't want to say final, final fully, yeah, right. <laughs> fully verified trip. And uh, that was quite interesting. I mean, I had been at that point, I almost had an annual trip to DPRK, not knowing it was just going to be those four years in right. a row. Um, so the advantage of that is I had some baselines of looking at things. And each trip was a little bit different. They had been focused on the economy, though. The The second and third trip were great and uh, really a chance for... They were sort of economic study tours mm-hmm. um, where uh, our group uh, met with uh, economic officials and visited sites uh, with, you know, trying to understand where DPRK was. So this is late Kim Jong-il era. And so the, uh, the quote-unquote Google trip, um, I was not really part there was sort of two that was a two-headed beast um as you'll recall uh eric schmidt was you know got all the the glory uh naturally as a very prominent figure um but governor bill richardson who's also uh you know very involved for a long time on north korea things he was also on that trip and so i kind of came in through the richardson uh, mm. side of it rather than the google side but uh-huh. But we have, I think there were eight or nine of us. I mean, obviously, we were interacting as a, as a group. And so I was able to sit in on the schedule. Okay. And so the what was so interesting as a learning experience for me about that is it was very much focused on IT, obviously. Mm. This is, what, wait, what year was this again? This was February or January, February 2013. Okay, so yeah. I'm just thinking could, uh, contextually. So North Korea already had its uh, mobile phone network at that stage. Yeah, that's right. But this was before they launched their intranet. Is that correct? Uh, intranet was was around. Intranet oh, was, was around limited. Yeah. The key is uh, the the steady advance of the of the cell phone. Yeah. Uh, we went to the Coriolink office. Ah. You know that was a major theme of the visit was to learn Mm -hmm. uh, where are they with the cell phone and really to encourage that trend, you know, to make, to make the argument that, uh, you know, already at that point, so that was the very beginning of the Kim Jong-un era. He had already articulated 
the importance of economic development. He had used phrases like, uh, what was it? You know, the kind of new information economy. Mm. You know, he had some of the early like, whoa, this guy maybe is a little different. Uh, was related to that economic language and and even IT sorts of stuff, you know. And of course, science and technology has continued to be a big theme for for Kim Jong Un. So I'd say our our group was, you know, making an argument that um, this is very positive for for North Korea's economy, for the people. Let them connect. As they connect, that's how you grow. You know, that's a model globally. So um, if there was kind of an agenda, it was to encourage that. And of course, that um, you know that trend has. Continue. What are we at? I mean, the estimates range depending on how you count it. Uh, but I th- probably back then it was in the hundreds of thousands of users, you know, of cell phones. And of course, now we're in the millions. Yeah. Um, not, not not creating a causal link here, but that's been a very important development uh, for for North Korea. No sign of Google operating in North Korea just yet, is there? Oh, no, I mean, again, I was not uh, read into their side, but right. and I had a lot of questions. Why are they there? Yeah. And I can't really answer. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, that it's not a business plan, mm-hmm. you know, kind of kind of trip. I mean, one thing to help with the context is Eric Schmidt and um, Jared Cohen, uh, they published a book um, not long after that trip um, on, on the theme of the relationship between politics and information, you know. Uh-huh. And so um, um, I think that you could understand that trip as part of a whole process um, for for them as as uh, authors rather than uh, a business. You know, I do not think that was a business-driven mm-hmm. kind of trip. But again, I don't want to comment. I don't want to comment for Google. I don't want sure. Google coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, you know how. Um, all right, some big picture questions for you here. So uh, what different perspective does being a, a sinologist, a China scholar, bring to looking at issues surrounding the Korean Peninsula? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one thing I've, I've found, again, I mentioned, like, is there a New York school mm. of North Korea? If we think about what are some of the, the very loose schools of thought and ways, you know, ways of thinking about North Korea and studying North Korea, I mean, for me, for better and certainly for worse, the, the fact that I come from China China studies, that has always strongly influenced the lens I use to understand North Korea. You know, for example, these visits, especially the first visit, I mean, it was fascinating for a Chinese historian. It was like time travel, Ah, you know, because while there are huge differences, there are some pretty striking similarities, you know, between where, uh, especially in 2009, where North Korea was and the things that I read about and teach about, you know, in terms of uh, a few decades back, elements of the Chinese uh, system, Chinese ideology that's really changed in in certain fundamental ways in China, but has kind of continued preserved in DPRK. So that's one thing at a kind of scholarly level. Mm. For uh, for a Chinese historian, there is a certain degree of um, time travel, you know, and yeah. and but again, uh, that creates problems. That creates a whole set of bias because I'm looking for things. Right. You know, I'm looking for a set of parallels and. The other big issue where that where that affects how we see uh, North Korea's current developments and its trajectory, its future, certainly for myself and probably others who come from a China background, the the sort of at the biggest level, the big mistake, if you want, of the field, say in in a U.S. context, was really thinking that the system couldn't survive. I mean, this is all in the papers now. It was discovered. A long time ago, but but it's being reported as if it's a recent discovery. Huh. But this notion that you know authoritarian 
uh, capitalism, right, is viable, yeah. is sustainable. That is something that, you know, back in the 90s into the early 2000s was thought it's not. You know, something's going to have to give capitalism a democracy. Well, that was the debate between Lee Kuan Yew and Kim Dae-jung, wasn't it, in, in, in Foreign Affairs magazine that Lee Kuan Yew said yeah, basically I mean, a, made the argument for debate. authoritarian capitalism. That's and right. Kim Dae-jung says, no, no, uh, you know, things like human rights are universal values. They're applicable in Asia as well. Yeah, that's right. And in, in, terms, in terms of the evolution of the China field, still there was an expectation that something's going to have to give. And, and it didn't. Understanding uh, China's contemporary development, you know, ideas like uh, Andy Nathan at Columbia was an early one to articulate. I think he called it resilient authoritarianism, ah. you know, that you have to find the strengths of, the, of party control, yeah. not in a moral sense, but in a political sense. And the political economy of what China was doing is actually viable. So that, you know, that was the lesson, right, that uh, China scholars have been wrestling with. And I think if you see the contrast with Soviet studies, because a lot of people who do really good work on North Korea come from the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe, they learned sort of the opposite lesson, right? They had the opposite problem. They thought the Soviet Union was sticking around and suddenly it collapsed. Right. Very few in that community anticipated the collapse and the fall, especially at the time that it came. And so there is, you, you can't, you know, you can't use this too strictly, but there is a sort of China school of North Korea watching, which tends to see the strengths, if you want, the survivability, the viability of what they're doing. Whereas if you're coming from Soviet studies, East European, you see more of the weaknesses, mm -hmm. you see the brittleness, you see, no, this thing really could collapse tomorrow. And so I think that's one very fundamental way in which coming from China has structured how I interpret North Korea. Okay, so we've talked about your background in China, also the New York School. What about DC-based North Korea analysts? Do, they, do you feel that they see North Korea clearly or does their proximity to the political center of the US blinker them to some degree? That's tough. I'm not sure there's, um, because New York is probably a smaller community, I uh, feel it's a little easier to make some generalizations. DC is is the center. There's a lot more there of North Korea studies and especially analysis. You get a little bit more of a, a cross section, I guess. And it's bigger. It's harder for me to generalize. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a DC school, I mean, there's certain features of the view of North Korea from Washington that are that are pretty hard to to penetrate, you know, to break those conceptions. They're consistent, they're logical. Mm -hmm. They have a valid argument. You know, they're very focused on the policy side of it and, you know, there's a very strong view we're seeing it right now despite the changes of uh 2017 and 2018. I think there's a general reaction in Washington, I would characterize it as a refusal to see that anything is new here. Mm -hmm. You know, there's kind of the North Korea playbook uh, concept, the buying the same horse twice or three times, yeah. you know, that that sort of fatalistic view that you really don't get anything new with North Korea. They're always up to the same old tricks. That is uh, pretty common, pretty widespread. And uh, and it's very hard to, you know, to break that consensus. I do think that's pretty strong. How do prospects for long-term peace on the Korean Peninsula look to you right now? For peace on the Korean Peninsula, things are looking better than at any point, say, in the last decade that I've been following this stuff because of the degree of political will. I mean, it's being this is a process driven by the political will of two, three people, Kim Jong-un, Moon Jae-in, and Donald Trump. 
And so, you know, they've they they had a, a clear breakthrough, a sharp breakthrough. There have been changes in on Kim Jong Un's part, formal kind of highest level uh, official articulation of a fundamental strategic shift announced in April to a focus on economic development, uh, which coming along with commitment to denuclearization, which was new for Kim Jong-un, not new for the North Korean regime, but new for Kim Jong-un to come out and say that. And, you know, and other statements and actions by the North Koreans, there's a new logic uh, at play in, in North Korea that's very focused on economic development and that wants a peace as a kind of uh, condition that comes along with that, that enables it, you know. So that's a huge opportunity and and the timing is is fortuitous in that you have a South Korean leader who's all about peace and reconciliation and you know peaceful coexistence and co-prosperity as they say so the if we look at how they've done this last year you know they met three times mm-hmm. they're working on the fourth uh, a visit of Kim jong-un to South Korea which would be uh, historic they have a comprehensive military agreement you know they have a long way to go but they're doing stuff you know they're doing stuff in the DMZ. They'll be working on the West Sea. It's a harder issue, but they're they're tackling it. So they really are with this powerful political will, uh, with a kind of strategic alignment around this notion of peaceful coexistence and co-prosperity in Pyongyang and Seoul, with it looks like pretty good public support for the inter-Korean peace here in the South. They've got some time and they're trying to change facts on the ground, you know, through this peace building effort. So, you know, I'm an, I'm an optimistic guy. That's that's the positive stuff. Now, Jacko, you can hit me with all the negative stuff. Go ahead. Well, uh, well, I could push back a little bit and say that um, support for President Moon overall has, has been dropping. Yeah. Uh, and he's lost a lot of percentage points. Now he's under 60, uh, under 50, uh, which is quite a drop for him. I mean, he was, you know, very high earlier this year around the time of the Pyeongchang Olympics. So what you've spoke, what you said in the last couple of minutes, you focused mainly on inter-Korean relations. Right. But in terms of North Korea-US relations, it's interesting that despite the uh, the June Trump-Kim summit and the, the seeming willingness of North Korea to interact with America on a very high political level, when it comes to working level meetings uh, and actual practical stuff, uh, there hasn't been that much forward movement from North Korea. In the US DPRK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Absolutely. Yeah. So on those two, I, I agree. Uh, I don't dispute the pushback. Quickly on public opinion, I haven't seen if there's polling. I, I also saw the poll of Moon's general popularity. Uh, I think everyone, every analysis would agree that's not about the inter-Korean process. That's about the economic situation and, and other issues and I've written about this, uh, that this is a problem for President Moon in the long run. If he puts too much focus on inter-Korean relations, yeah. he's going to lose a lot of people, including his base, because that's not why he was elected. You know, And so uh, I agree that he's, in, he's facing a difficult period. He's already in a very difficult period in terms of uh, sustaining support. The thing still I would say is I've been surprised that agree if you look at the polls – on the inner Korean issue itself, I think you would agree they've been very positive, and and there has been a break uh, for the for the kind of liberal engagement approach. Uh, but of course, it has to keep delivering, yeah. you know. And more critical for President Moon's general support in South Korea is how the economy goes and how domestic social issues go. So I would I would just. Um, Add that caveat. Now, on the issue of we have an inter-Korean process that's going uh, pretty smoothly, that's advancing, the meetings happen, 
they're mostly sticking to the timelines. There's mm-hmm. a couple of big ones they might miss, and that could be a problem. Well, um, Kim might. It seems unlikely to come before the end of the year, which was originally promised. Yeah, that's right. Well, it wasn't. I'm not sure it was a hard promise, but it okay. was an expectation. Yeah. I think uh, maybe more significant is depending on how it's finessed, but the declaration of the end of war mm. in some shape or form uh, was supposed to happen by the end of the year. And um, so that's, you know, missing a, a deadline. But still, overall, the story has been in an inter-Korean process um, with some hiccups, the meetings happen. Right. The process is 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 thick, but, you know, and they have documents, the documents, the agreements. If you look at Panmunjom and Pyongyang, and also, you know how to read the hyperlinks to the previous inter-Korean agreements. And you look at the annex and the, the comprehensive military agreement. It's everything that's lacking in the U.S. process. You know, Singapore is very thin. It's a one-page, right. you know, President Trump can hold up a picture and you yeah. can read the whole thing when you zoom in. So we've got two very different processes here. They're working on different timelines. They're making... Uh, right, but the, but okay, the, the extent to which inter-Korean economic cooperation can advance yeah uh, is that not limited uh, by um, a slowdown in North Korea DP, uh, North Korea US relations sure, you know, absolutely. That, that without sanctions relief which will only come from you know uh, denuclearized actual concrete steps towards denuclearization uh, South Korea can't do things that it might want to do like for example reopen the cancer industrial complex yeah. open up new industrial zones or economic zones sure. uh, reopen uh, Kumgangsan you know tourism those things can't really go ahead without significant uh, development on the US front yeah that's right the key is to understand the three of them if we focus on the three leaders and what they've said they've said they want and what I think their actions are consonant with them truly wanting, they are a little bit stuck right now uh, in terms of advancing their own articulated agenda. You know, something's going to have to move. So uh, Moon and Kim want real, uh, it's not just peaceful coexistence, it's peaceful coexistence and co-prosperity, you know, and co-prosperity has to mean real economic uh, exchange and Mm -hmm. cooperation, uh, not just symbolic stuff. So that part of the process has to move from symbolic to real. And uh, yeah, that can only happen in coordination with progress in the US-North Korea relationship overall, mm-hmm. point number one of Singapore, as well as more steps toward denuclearization, point number three of Singapore. I, I Again, I don't dispute, you know, when we isolate inner Korea, I would still argue a huge amount of progress and it's a good process that they have but go, for this year. But going into next year, uh, I'm not quite sure when, but without some breakthroughs, without probably another Trump-Kim summit, without another positive set of reciprocal steps like last time that Kim takes and that Trump takes either in advance of or in the wake of that summit, and without some movement there, uh, the inter-Korean process is going to start to hit frustration. You know, mm. everyone's going to get frustrated. Um, that's all, Obviously, we're already seeing early signs of that, but it'll only get worse if something doesn't give. Now, I know in the last year, you could certainly find things to be optimistic about, and you, you mentioned that you're optimistic. And Panglossian is I think the term I prefer, but yes. Panglossian, okay. Uh, but I think it would be fair to say that you've been generally quite bullish on engagement with North Korea for a long time. That's true. I get the feeling over the years from things that you've said in the media that uh, uh, you've interpreted almost any action taken by North Korea as a sign that 
quote, Pyongyang wants to talk or, quote, Kim Jong-un wants to make a deal. Where does that optimism and consistent optimism come from? That's a good question. I guess my parents. Um, But yeah, I mean, there are, there are, we're not, you know, supposed to admit them as analysts. You're just cold hearted uh, computers. (laughs) Um, But personality affects the way you see something, especially it's true with North Korea. It's not like we're just guessing. But we do have more more limited information, and uh, and that's a problem. There's freer reign for your your personal predilection to shape you know your interpretation of mm-hmm. events, and I uh, I'm guilty of that. I mean I'm a I'm a pro engagement person all around the board. You right. know I'm a I'm a professor. I'm talking to you. I try to talk to the media as much as you know they care and schedule allows. I try to write in a way that not just academics, a broad uh, public can can uh, read. Now, I would say uh, there there is another element though to it, which is probably probably I'm I'm also reacting uh, to the environment within the United States and of other other voices on the North Korea issue. And so maybe there's a little bit of overcorrection, but you're not going to get anywhere on a tough diplomatic issue if your starting point is, I don't really want to talk to you, you know, prove to me you're worthy of me talking to you. So I suppose, you know, part of it is pushing back very hard against that to say, look, they're there. They're not going anywhere. We have serious problems. Uh, There are serious threats and there's massive misunderstanding. And, you know, you start with talking. Um, so I have that has been a consistent emphasis, I guess, in my approach. Then let, let me throw a couple of uh, sensitive questions at you. What are some signs that you might be looking out for to see if Kim Jong Un's views are less than honourable, or maybe to phrase it another way, how could your current views of North Korea's intentions be falsified? Oh, that's a great question. To get in the weeds a little bit, but in a way, I'm sure your listeners would enjoy. And I've been asking people, others, um, you know, what are we looking for in the New Year's speech? Um, so that's one way. And in fact, I've even thought of of committing somehow. Right? If I were, if I had the time, I would draft my own positive, Mm. you know, what could he say, New Year's speech, and then see how much it it varies from the actual thing he delivers. That'll be one we'll have to meet again. And you can ask me, did he falsify some of my optimism? Because there's going to be room in that speech, you know, where he can send messages um, that affirm the peace and denuclearization process or really distance from it and undermine it. So that'll be one thing that I'll try to look at open-mindedly. And you can catch me if I say, oh, it was great. And in fact, um, that's one. I would say, again, in terms of what Kim Jong-un could say or do, to me, it was even actually beyond my uh, hopeful framework um, that he, in April, declared the end of Byungjin, mm-hmm. the victorious end of Byungjin, and the shift to all efforts on socialist economic construction. So that really exceeded my expectations of when and how uh, Kim Jong-un would move toward this economic development emphasis. But to your question, what would persuade me otherwise, you know, and they've been different uh, North Korean outlets have been kind of dangling this. If they pull back, if Kim Jong-un pulls back or lets his system pull back from the new strategy and says, well, maybe we have to, you know, bring Byung-jin back. That would be a major setback for my view of Kim Jong-un's determination, you know, um, because that would mean it wasn't a strategic shift. Now, of course, some and I'll be tempted to say, oh, it's because, you know, they didn't have the meetings or, you know, the process didn't move smoothly enough. 
So you should call me out on that, you know, because if he's really made a shift in April, he's got to stick with that shift. Mm-hmm. So that would be one. That would be another thing that, that could happen uh, that would falsify some of my optimism. What if he were or, or the state media were to once again refer to nuclear weapons as a sacred sword that will never be given up or something like that? Well, treasured sword, I don't expect um, that they've given up and uh, that language. Uh, but again, if they said we'll never give up nuclear weapons, then then I'm wrong, and a lot of us are wrong. Now, of course, they hardly but ever that, say that, right? Because there's, really, there's a spectrum, isn't there? There's one: we'll never give up nuclear weapons. Two: the sort of Boltonian plan: we'll bring a ship, you know, take your weapons tomorrow. Uh, but in the middle is also a: we'll give up nuclear weapons when the U.S. reduces the nu- or removes the nuclear threat from the Korean Peninsula, right? And that has some very specific steps involved, right? right. Uh, taking the troops out, removing the nuclear umbrella, removing well, nukes from Japan. Etc. Well, no, we don't know any of those things. I mean, that's really what. Well, these uh, are things that they've said before, especially in Track One Point Five, Track Two dialogue. That I know when I had uh, Evans Revere on my podcast, he said exactly that. That North Koreans have told him repeatedly, "We will feel confident enough to uh, remove our nuclear weapons when the U.S. nuclear threat involving the umbrella, the troops, the uh, the, the weapons in Okinawa, when those things are removed, that's when we'll feel confident." Yeah, those are all starting positions, you have to be careful about using track 1.5 and track 2 discussions. Uh, How much authority do you give them? And I've participated in them. They're useful. You hear things. You can track changes in their positions. But I would never cast something a North Korean official told me in a 1.5 setting and say, this is you know, their bottom line. This is uh, when, because it's not a real negotiation when they're talking to uh, people like me and Evans Revere and others. They know who we are. We're not speaking on behalf of the U.S. government. They're not going to give away their real positions. That's for a formal negotiation. So I, I would not take that stuff to the bank. Um, we don't know. In fact, you know, as you know, uh, Kim Jong-il said to Kim Dae-jung at their summit, actually, so long as the U.S. military presence is clearly not hostile to me, my, I'm not demanding that they leave. Um, and there's been some indication of Kim Jong-un, at least. Certainly, he's not banging his fist on the table saying, I can do this when you get USFK off the peninsula. So no, it- the whole question of, you're, you're right, that the North Korean position is, and I think will always be, I'm not, I, I, this would not falsify my view. This is my view. Their position is they can give up their nuclear deterrent when the threat is gone, right? And that's the space we're in is the two, three sides agreeing to general principles of, I mean, the breakthrough of Singapore was that the U.S. government through President Trump agreed that the relationship has to change, you know, agreed to what is basically a North Korean position that it's, it's, it's uh, illogical, if not absurd, to imagine them giving up their nuclear weapons while they still feel the, the level of threat from the United States. Now, there's two ways to change that threat. One way is through removal of capabilities. Your list was all removing capabilities. Mm -hmm. The other is through changing uh, intention and relationship, where North Korea looks around the region. They even look at USFK. They know the capabilities are there. But the relationship has fundamentally changed over a process of time. So they don't wake up in the morning and worry, you know, is is the U.S. going to invade us anymore? Uh, They have legitimate reason to worry about the regime security. If you look at recent history, if you look at... U.S. attitudes towards North Korea, 
um, they have legitimate reason. That is not a contrived threat on their part. But there's also a process which has begun and could succeed where the North Koreans could could really not worry so much about that. And it's a combination of changing, removing capabilities, but also changing intention and relationship. Um, so that's what that's what they're working on. You know, that's the the project of this diplomacy. What do you think is the best argument against engagement with the North, and how do you counter it? The best argument against engagement, well, I'll tell you one I really struggle with, is the question of human rights. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a scenario where this process, say, as someone like me conceives of it, moves forward in a constructive and positive manner, and we have real progress on a meaningful peace on the Korean Peninsula, the two Koreas worry a lot less about each other. The whole situation, you know, stabilizes to agree we haven't. And you even have a realization of this peaceful coexistence thing. And you get progress toward complete denuclearization. And there's going to be constant, you know, hewing and hawing. But basically, it's positive. From the question of, you know, how much has life improved for the average North Koreans? Mm. Um, I, I'm still okay with the engagement argument. I believe it that that um, you know, you're gonna have improvements, some basic, uh, you know, uh, even, I mean, just in terms of suffering, human suffering should decrease in North Korea. But I think it would be naive to assume that human rights kind of narrowly defined, you know, uh, but you know, UN charter defined human rights in a liberal democratic sense that you're gonna have any progress there. And that's, that's tough. I think this also reflects China background and kind of some of the agonies that the, that the China community in the United States is going through yeah. of sort of the full reckoning, uh, especially with these reports of re-education camps on a massive scale, hundreds of thousands, a million mm. of uh, Uyghurs, Uyghurs. In, in Xinjiang, you know, you, you, you sort of, again, transfer that over to a North Korean context. Uh, I'm not convinced that, that this process translates into human rights improvements. Mm -hmm again, sort of narrowly defined. And and as someone, as a liberal democratic person who cares about human rights, that's very difficult. You know, um, I, I don't see a viable alternative strategy except really a regime change strategy. And um, that creates so many other problems that, uh, that I still think engagement is the right way to go. Um, and the kind of, you know, people talk about human security or I say human flourishing. You know, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of ways you can build that in so that you are at least reducing suffering and expanding the scope of, of the life of North Koreans. But it's a very slow process and, and there's not guarantees that you're really getting that kind of improvement on human rights. So to me, that that's one of the toughest critiques of engagement to respond to. Okay, let's... Uh Talk for a minute about an op-ed piece that you wrote for the New York Times in late September. Okay. This is related back to earlier. You were talking about um, the sort of authoritarian capitalism or what was the word? Resilient? Yeah, resilient authoritarianism, authoritarianism. I think. You wrote that Kim Jong-un is less like his father and grandfather in terms of ideological approach and more like post-World War II Japanese PM um, Yoshida Shigeru, more like Singapore's founding father Lee Kuan Yew, more like South Korea's military dictator Park Chung-hee, et cetera, et cetera, and even Deng Xiaoping in China. Can you flesh that out a little bit? How is he less ideologically like his father and grandfather and more like these uh, authoritarian capitalist sort of uh, oriented dictators? Well, the argument is simple in a way. It's building on things that Kim Jong-un has said from very early on, where, again, he had this emphasis on, uh, you know, I'm not going to make you tighten your belts, right? That was kind of the first 
tagline of uh, I think that was in an April 2012 uh, speech. You know, to to put it a bit boldly, I would argue he really was in his public speeches, well distributed, advertised domestically in North Korea. He was sort of shifting the social contract, if you want, you know, the kind of and the basis of uh, the legitimacy of the the DPR state and the Kim regime, his own era uh, was going to be about a kind of performative legitimacy, you know, some call it uh, in terms of economic development. And that is not a promise, certainly that his father made. It's a little more complicated when you get back to Kim Il-sung, you know, because um, there were there were many eras, periods of, of Kim Il-sung where he did use some of that language. So I don't want to exaggerate it, but I would say overall and certainly by the end of the Kim Il-sung era and very much during the Kim Jong-il era, you know, the agreement, the implicit agreement between the state and the people was we're keeping you safe by keeping you under sort of total control and keeping the world away from you. And and so it was this, it was very much a security based. It was a kind of militant um, compact, whereas Kim Jong-un has sent different signals from the beginning of the basis of legitimacy is economic development. And and so he makes these visits criticizing cadres for failing to deliver, you know, for not building the aquarium right or for not uh, doing whatever it is. A lot of his inspection guidance visits have been uh, focused on kind of reading the riot act or encouraging local officials to deliver in terms of economic performance in the in the local areas. And then he's articulated that, as we mentioned, in April doubling down as a general strategy, promising the, the purpose of the state at this stage of DPRK history is to improve economic performance to develop the economy. And so that is a basic shift. That's a shift that, as as I mentioned in that piece, and you, you listed uh, those figures, it's actually a very typical 20th century East Asian shift where you have a strong man leader. There's no promise of kind of liberalization of the political system, except very minimal, really. Uh, so it's basically you're staying within an authoritarian system. But a decision has been made by a strong leader up at the top that we're, we're shifting our focus, we're shifting our resources, and we're shifting our kind of our mindset from a security mindset, from militancy to economic development. And so that's what I see in Kim Jong-un that looks familiar uh, to, those, to those figures you listed and doesn't follow from the legacy, certainly of his father and even really his grandfather. All right. Can I push back a little bit and yeah, throw push. a few things at you? Okay. So we had uh, Kim Il-sung, of course, of course, certainly said uh, uh, that his people will not go hungry, that they will have, in fact, uh, meat and, and, and meat soup and rice, you know, every day. Uh, so he talked about what at that time was uh, a view of prosperity, right? Being able to have rice, not uh, millet, not barley, not potatoes every day, but, you know, rice and meat soup. And uh, Kim Jong-il, I would argue that absolutely he did... Uh, talk and, and highlight the importance of economic prosperity, even though he didn't use the word Pyongjin, which for those of us at home who might not be familiar, Pyongjin is this uh, word uh, that means a, a parallel line of development. So at the same time, nuclear development and, uh, and economic development or economic growth. 
right? Um, Kim Jong-il, although he didn't use that word per se, he did, uh, for example, in 2007, highlight a, a policy that was almost exactly the same, which was parallel development of both the economy and nuclear weapons. And uh, uh, just before he died, they were looking forward to 2012, the 100th anniversary of the birth of Kim Il-sung as being a year that uh, North Korea becomes, you know, opens the door to becoming a, a great and prosperous nation. I mean, when I was there in 2010, my guides were saying to me, you got to come back in 2012. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be a yeah. great and prosperous nation. And the, the, the posters showed, you know, cornucopia overflowing with uh, with good things and uh, and food and riches and stuff. So I would argue that uh, it's hard to... I, I can't see that shift from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un as clearly as you can. But And, and the, the very idea of the Pyongyang line that how can any policy which nom- at least nominally places equal weight on a very resource-costly development of nuclear weapons with the economic growth needed to improve the average citizens' lives. How can that be judged positively at all? I don't entirely disagree. As I said, especially Kim Il-sung is complicated because there are periods where the- he did shift emphasis moderately toward economic development. During the Kim Il-sung era, there was a degree of fixation. Uh, he started an invasion of South Korea. Mm-hmm. He was close to winning the whole peninsula. And for Kim Il-sung, you know, the itch that he always wanted to scratch, probably until the end, uh, was coercive uh, reunification or some kind of subversive course of reunification. So I think that that is an element that is sort of predominates much of the Kim Il-sung era or is always in the back of the mind of Kim Il-sung. And, you know, if that's your fundamental strategic goal, then sure, you know, it's not like Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il said, we promise that we'll keep North Korea poor or make North Korea poor. The issue is to what degree when they have to choose, you know, when there's a hierarchy of, of strategic goals, where does economic development fall, right, in that hierarchy? And and I agree with some of your points because there's shifts within Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il era. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they just completely ignore the economy. But I would argue that in neither case, and especially in Kim Jong-il's case, in neither case was economic development made the centerpiece. Was it made the the kind of the starting point and the key central strategic goal? So the fact that there was a Byungjin, I mean, uh, Kim Il-sung used Byungjin in the 1960s. I think 1962 is when I know of it being articulated officially. If you look at the evolution of that Byungjin, it was very much focused on, of course, it wasn't nuclear and economic. It was military and economic. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of, of the decade, it was turned into de facto a heavy emphasis on defense spending. I mean, that's from what we know of allocations, budgetary allocations. That's when DPRK really becomes this distorted economy spending too much on on its defense, on its military, was under that Byungjin. And by 1970, Kim Il-sung publicly announced Byungjin failed. You know, the economy has not really developed like we hoped, but we're he sort of dropped the Byungjin language and said, we're sticking with, you know, we're doubling down on Fortress North Korea and on military defense. We're not cutting military defense. That to me is a very sharp contrast with the second Byungjin, which Kim Jong-un articulated early on, right, March 2013. When Kim Jong-un brings back Byungjin, what's it in response to? It's in response to uh, Songun, right? Military first, literally, military first, Right. Uh, again, not in a narrow nuclear sense, but in a, a total focus on uh, we have limited resources and they go to the military first. And we do not give up on that. That w- that w- that was, I think, a defining strategic choice of Kim Jong-il that he never really let go of. 
that's Kim Jong-un's inheritance. He comes in and uh, a year after his father dies, he says, well, I have a new strategy. It's half and half. Half nuclear, not total military, but half nuclear and half economic development. And then five years later, he announces it worked and now we're going to 100% economic. So I don't see a precedent for that in Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il. I do see a precedent in uh, that list of East Asian, uh, the East Asian model that, uh, that we started this part of the conversation with. Okay. In the same piece, you wrote, Mr. Kim wants North Korea to become a normal East Asian economy catch up with and integrate into the region, and it's in everyone's interest to help him to do so. Is it possible to be, for North Korea to become a, quote, normal East Asian economy, unquote, without the flows of information and labor that would probably make Kim Jong-un feel nervous about his own stability? No. So how then, how, how do I even ask this? Uh, would that not be a falsification of your optimism, that if Kim Jong-un doesn't allow the kind of information flows and I'm not even talking just about the internet, but just, you know, information flows from outside North Korea and labor flows, people not having to uh, get the passes to move from province to province to, to seek work. Yeah. How would that even be possible to become a normal East Asian economy? What steps would be, Won't would be. be necessary? Won't be. So let's test the hypothesis. And instead of banning U.S. citizens from even traveling to North Korea, mm-hmm. let's encourage the flow of, of Americans and all nationalities into North Korea and encourage the flow of North Koreans out instead of, as the current UN sanctions do, uh, banning North Korea sending laborers um, to work in overseas countries and flow back, not just the money, but the information, Mm -hmm. uh, the networks, the socialization. Instead of banning that and cutting that off, let's encourage it. And will Kim Jong-un, or certainly, if not Kim Jong-un himself, he's in my Estimation, could be wrong. He's very high risk, high reward. Actually, that's another key feature of those East Asian leaders we discussed. Mm. And so um, I don't think he's he's naive about it. I think he knows the risk, um, but I think he's willing to to run it. Now, they'll try to keep as much control as they can, just like in all those cases, to varying degrees, there are efforts to, to control the information environment. I mean, China works very hard still to control the information environment. And Deng, from the beginning, as as he started the transformation of of China, known as reform and opening up, you know, he he talked about how when we open the window, flies are going to get in, you know, and so they, and then among Deng and his peers, there was a constant ongoing debate about, Jesus, is this okay? That's a lot of flies that are coming in, right. you know, and then do we need a better fly swatter? Do we shut the window? What do we do? So yeah, it it will cause unease. Um, not just Kim Jong-un, but the ruling elite to allow this process. But right now we're not, we're barely, South Korea is starting, we're barely even testing the hypothesis because actually we talk about the hermit kingdom and the isolation of North Korea. Mm-hmm. And yes, they do things uh, to keep up their walls, but we also do things to lock the door and bolt it from the outside. So you're saying go deeper, go further and test the hypothesis. See yeah, if it works absolutely. out. Okay, as we approach the end of our interview time together today, I've got some uh, rapid fire questions to throw at you. So please speed answer round. in media friendly soundbites. Okay. okay, speed round. Yeah. Kim Dae Jung, Donald Trump, Xi Jinping, what do they want in terms of the Korean Peninsula? What's, what are their intentions? Trump wants to win in an entertaining way. Um, Xi Jinping doesn't have very strong wants out of the Korean Peninsula itself. He wants to probably stabilize the situation and manage other problems. Kim Jong-un wants um, to uh, make North Korea, he wants to be to leave the historic legacy that he's the one who, who transformed North Korea so that it caught up 
it caught up with the rest of the region and really the world. Do you think that hawkish behavior by the United States has ever had any positive effects in moving North Korea to where the U.S. wants it to go? You mean in terms of the uh, the use of a military threat? Yeah. Well, there's there's a role for deterrence. I'm not that much of a peacenik, but in a in a kind of sober and sustained way. No, I don't think it's useful though when it's amped up to the real hawk level of saber rattling. That just feeds the worst tendencies of the North Korean system. What brought us to where we are this year then? Uh, what brought about the change that we saw, you know, the, the sort of Pyeongchang Winter Olympics change or the well, or date it to whenever you like? You can go to the, uh, the New Year's speech. Yeah. Not one thing. You know, I mean, I teach my students, the first thing you learn when you do serious history is almost everything is multi-causal. When you read the newspaper, you're looking for monocausal accounts. Since this is the speed round, maybe I just say lots of things. Lots of things. A okay. constellation of things. Read, uh, read the book if you want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, given the, uh, the warming of inter-Korean ties, do you think the idea that some, particularly Professor Brian Myers and Pusan espouse, that North Korea can push South Korea around or perhaps coerce South Korea into position of subservience or maybe even ultimately take over the South. Is that now a stronger possibility? Absolutely not. And North Korea knows enough about South Korea. They watched the candlelight movement, for example. They even covered it to some degree on the pages of Nodong Shimun. It is still a control freak system in mm. the north, although there's some positive movements, but modest. For a, a control-oriented, control-obsessed system like North Korea, about the worst nightmare I could imagine is running South Korea. So, no, I think the the boogeyman of this is all about coercive reunification is uh, is something that really distracts us from the real issues. What scares you about a sudden collapse of North Korea or a sudden unification of the two Koreas? It, it doesn't really scare me, um, but there are scenarios. I mean, I wrote something with Professor Moon Jung-in, for example. You know, there are bad ways that North Korea could fall apart. And then if if external actors, including South Korea, move too quickly in a military form, you could have bloodshed. You know, the North Korean system, we, we can't we can't game that out where we know sort of how they're going to respond in, in a situation of conflict. So you would have potentially massive loss of life. So that maybe was what frightened me when I wrote that piece. But I'd have to look at, mm -hmm. you know, there's a there was there was a there was a kind of fairy tale version of uh, North Korean collapse and South Korean absorption. And I think uh, in the piece you're referencing Professor Moon and I were writing against that and saying it's not necessarily such a pretty sight. You're an academic who engages a lot with the media. What do you seek to achieve? Do you hope to influence policy in, in the US or in South Korea? Or are you just trying to raise your academic profile? <laughs> it doesn't raise your academic profile. Um, some of it is just having a hard time saying no. You know, it's ego. Um, but I'm serious. You know, for academics, engagement with the media is, is a mixed bag. Uh, you actually don't get strong incentives within the academic world. And I actually think that's a very good thing. You know, I think it's a positive thing because it maintains a certain integrity to academic and scholarly life. We really shouldn't be judged so much on that. Because of this issue, especially the last couple of years, you know, for example, someone like me, I've had a lot of media exposure comparatively, but I'm, I also see through why that's the case. I mean, you know, part of it is simply I'm a native English speaker mm. who's awake because of the time zone I'm in uh. and I can take a call, you know, <laughs> and people know I can take a call and and try and be thoughtful about something. And so, you know, it's, sometimes it's as simple as that. So 
I hope I don't suffer any visions of the glory <laughs> of this. Uh, there's been a big supply demand problem with North Korea commentary, and and actually I've I've tried and I'm trying continuously, um, and, I, and I think as a community <coughs> community we're kind of trying to get back in our lanes, you know, and focus on the things to speak. The best system is one in which people are speaking on things they really know in yeah. some depth, you know, and there's, and, and I'm guilty of this too. There's a very negative tendency when you do sort of too much engagement with the media, you find yourself just talking about every which thing, right. you know, and uh, that's not, that's not good for the, it's not about influencing policy. It is about uh, informing publics. Mm -hmm. These are, we're working in liberal democratic societies and the people have a vote and the people need to be informed. So I love working with journalists mm -hmm. who I know they're serious about informing the public on these issues. And so, you know, I, I'm happy to be part of that effort. But to do that as kind of commentators, analysts, pundits, you know, we have to try to stay in our lanes as much as possible. We're not doing very well, with a, very well with a lightning round here, are we? We're doing okay. I mean, I feel like there's one or two where I just didn't say anything. Um, your top two or three policy recommendations for the coming year in terms of North Korea. The second summit has to happen uh, relatively soon. Expectations might have to be lowered. It could be a little ugly again process-wise uh, like the first summit. But I think we can still expect good new move on both sides to kind of keep the process going. So that would be one is don't be too afraid of a second summit. You're going to kind of have to let that happen. And uh, the second is how to view the inner Korean process, you know, from the view of Washington. It, here, I can I can feel the view from Washington is slow down, guys. Whoa, 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 mm -hmm. whoa. And uh, I think that um, that's, that's a dead end view. I think that uh, a much more constructive view from perspective of the United States and its goals uh, not just with North Korean denuclearization, but broadly in Korea and in the region, is to be consistently supportive of a Korean peace process. And President Moon is keeping it linked to denuclearization. So um, so that helps the South Koreans are, are on the same team. Um, and so you have to really embrace that peace process because you're not going to get denuclearization first. You're not going to get complete denuclearization first and then... Uh, peace. You're not going to get complete denuclearization and then, you know, sanctions relief in a normal economy. These things are going to happen simultaneously. And so you have to embrace the other side of the process. Uh, when does your book come out with a uh, co-written with Patrick McCacken? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, Is I it almost we, finished? No, I okay. think we have a ways to go. But um, but uh, please buy it whenever it comes out. Will it be sold at uh, online booksellers? It will be sold at an Amazon near you. Very good. Uh, I want to thank you very much for Thanks joining so us lot, and being Jack. so generous with your time today, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you uh, for your questions. And we'll have you coffee. in again next year after the second summit, I think. That uh, sounds good. To talk about whether you've been falsified you can or falsify not. falsify me. Right. That'd be fun. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to check out nkshop.org for all your North Korea-related holiday gift ideas, and you can get 10% off your entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10, that's NKPODCAST10, at the checkout. And please share this podcast, send us reviews and feedback, and listen again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>